Okay, it's been a while. I have not uploaded a podcast for, I think, a matter of months now. I've been busy doing some other stuff, been writing some music, been focused on other parts of my fellowship. So it's great to be able to present these podcasts. I'm getting back into it at the moment, now that I have a bit more time. And also the opportunity. I got to chat with John Jukon just after I spent a little bit of time up in Walgett, coming back via Canberra to sit down with him and have some songs translated into Uralaroi language, my grandmother's country. And then it was a good chance to get a bit of an insight into the work that he does, into the nuts and bolts of language, as well as the whole process that is required for him not only to piece together language from various sources, but also to be able to pass that on to other people. And it is quite interesting, him being an Italian-Australian, uh, non-Aboriginal fella, to then be, in a way, a knowledge keeper of my grandmother's culture's language. I know that there are sensitivities in regards to non-Aboriginal people speaking language, let alone being a person who is language resource for Aboriginal people. But, yeah, after speaking with Ted Fields Jr. about it, I felt quite comfortable uh, with the fact that you have this academic who is assisting me with my people's language. Yeah, I guess people are going to have different thoughts about that, and it's one of the reasons why this podcast, I think, would be quite interesting for people on both sides of that idea. So anyway, I hope you enjoy our little chat, and here he is, John Jacon. Uh, well, look, I was born in Italy, uh, and one of the things I've been really conscious of all my life is that I'm Italian. Um, and part of that was coming to Australia in the 1950s, uh, Italians were wogs, you know, Italians <coughs> sort of fitted the same slot that Muslims now fit in Australian society. Um, but I'm also Australian, so I've done a lot of bushwalking and, and Australia is my land in a way that's the country I feel at home in. But I also regard myself as a citizen of the world, you know, so... Um, I think I've got lots of different mobs. Yeah. And I know, I guess, spending so much time in Uralaroi and Gamilaroi country, does that factor into identity in a way and, like, as to your connection to people and place? Yeah, I... It was a big part of my life, uh, so working with Uncle Ted and... But walking that land, seeing that different land, being on land for the first time where you could follow the stories, you know, so the stories of a creation of the river. So you, you wouldn't walk down the river without saying, you know, this is Uncle Ted stood up there and told us the story of the cod going down here or hear a bird without saying, oh, <coughs> this is its language name and, and this is what it means. So there was quite, that was really different. Um, going out to Narrow Lake with Ted or out to uh, We Warra Plain and, and looking around and saying, okay, here's where people were created or up in that direction is where people were created. So it 
has resulted in a different relationship to to people and to land. Yeah. Mm. And how did you come to be living up in that part of the world? Um, well, I'm a Christian brother, and part of our philosophy, part of our aim, is to work with people who are struggling. So I'd been a school principal in the upmarket Sydney school, uh, and this was, but this was the next step in my life. So, you know, what do I do? Um, and so I said, I'll, I'll give Walgett a go. And I had some friends, other brothers who were working in Aboriginal scenes, so some in Moree. Steve Morelli was working with Gumbungia language. They were really good mates of mine. Um, and so there was the opportunity to have a bit of work in Walgett. Um, yeah, so I thought, okay, I'll give this a go. Yeah, uh, when was that? 94, 1994. All right. I kind of, I've got vague memories of Walgett back in the early 90s through the knockout, the football knockout up there. Not the Ricky Walford. Ricky Walford was a school kid's. Ricky Walford Shield was for school kids, yeah. I don't, there might have been other ones too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the state knockout? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, Walgett yeah. had a, a string of wins up there. Right. Yeah, so was there a certain process that you went through in regards to being so involved with language and culture? Like, uh, were you kind of thrown in the deep end or did it take time to develop trust and and spend time with the community before you were working in that field? Yeah, language language was always in the background because I'd done a fair bit of language and I was, you know, I, I know that with Italian kids of my vintage, um, some of us spoke Italian and lots of others wanted to be skips. They wanted to be Aussies. And so they, they did, wouldn't talk Italian. So I was conscious of some of that sort of politics and power of, of language. Um, but that wasn't the main aim I went there with. Um, I did things like a bit of tutoring, I did a bit of high school t relief teaching, um, but I'd seen Steve Morelli working with Gumbangi language and so it was always a possibility. Um, and I met Uncle Ted and he was really, in one sense, probably the only person in town, Auntie Rose Fernando out of town a bit, um, who were interested in language, but Ted was really interested in language and culture. And yeah, that probably took a year for, for us to start to work together. And then that was a really strong relationship for the rest of my time in Walgett mm. with Uncle Ted. But then other people came on board. So there were people at the high school who were keen. Um, education department funded some stuff. Uh, TAFE provided some funding later on. So, and also Gaduga. Um, at one stage after two or three years, I was thinking, will I stay in Walgett or not? And um, I'd been going to Gaduga for another job and I turned up there one day and the manager of the CDEP said to me, hey, listen, we want someone to teach people here language, a couple of Aboriginal people language, so that they can teach it in the school. Do you want to take that job on? And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's a pretty positive sign. And that and a couple of other things, after a few years, um, I was really looking to stay in Walgett and that gave me a really good reason to stay there. Uh, and I'd also started doing some uni study on language as well, so yeah. All right. So what did you bring to the teaching of language that, say, some other local speakers wouldn't have been able to do? Yeah, well, the local speakers 
Uh, I had people say to me, look, you know, Artie so-and-so speaks language. Well, um, I, I had afternoon tea with Artie and, you know, she had 20 or 30 words, I think. But if you're trying to put a sentence together saying, I'll drink the tea or will you drink some tea? There was no way she was able to get into any sort of um, technicalities of the language like will drink, did drink, drink it now, that sort of, you know, the, the variation in structure. And so, and, neither, and even Ted, I mean, I recorded a thousand words from Ted over the years, sometimes by going through old word lists and he would say, yes, I know that word. Other times you'd be driving along and he'd say, oh, you see those trees regrowing over there? That's called gudgy gudgy, you know, so you just would get something like that or Ted would occasionally come along and say, I woke up in the middle of the night and here's a word I wrote down, you know, mm. and so we got quite a lot of words, but Ted didn't have this structure, if you like, of, mm. of language. So one of the things I brought to it was that, I guess, because of my background uh, as a teacher and so on, I was able to go through Corinne Williams's grammar. So Corinne Williams wrote an honours thesis on this language in um, 1976. And, um, and so she said, okay, here's how you, here's how this verb goes. So, yanai will walk, yanaya, telling someone to walk, yanani, walked, you know. So she had structure there. So I was able to go through that and say, okay, here's some verbs, here's how we can use them in different contexts, here's how we put them together in a sentence. Um, and that, that's quite challenging because, for instance, there's a suffix that goes on to the end of the word. So if manga is table, manga ga means on the table or near the table. And that's quite different structure from English, but it's, I was able to interpret that and then teach people that and put it into lessons, excuse me, school lessons. So um, that was part of it. Another part of it was to to publish material. So we published a high school textbook. We published a quite extensive word list, which gathered material from Corinne Williams and some other stuff that a person called Peter Rossen had put together. So providing some of those materials, teaching the classes, um, they were some of the things. We also had quite a number of community meetings. Um, so I was based at St Joseph's Primary School and <coughs> because I knew the principal there, um, we were able to, to talk to local people and Auntie Faye Green was a key person and we established a, a language program at the school. So that was, that was really good and that, that was quite a change because there was virtually no language at the school at that time and there's been language for the 25 years or 20 years since. Yeah. So organisation is also part of, of what you bring, usually. Yeah. And how long does it take to pull together a dictionary? Well, it, it, the answer is from very short to very long. So the first thing I did was a word list, um, and that was pretty straightforward because I copied the material out of Corinne Williams's grammar and I copied a few other things, but it's, it's just a word list. So if you get a word like boomily hit, you think it's exactly the same as the English word hit. Now, that actually leads to quite dramatic language change because... It's very rare that a word in one language corresponds exactly to a word in another language. For example, in, in um, Aboriginal languages, often the word for head also means the hair on your head. So there's no one word for hair. 
the hair on your head is different from the hair on your body, which is different from pubic hair. You know, there's, there's three different words. So the word list was easy. Um, <clears throat> for the Gamilaroi Dictionary, I would have spent probably two years transcribing the tapes. So at one stage I got the tapes of Fred Reese and Arthur Dodd. So I spent a couple of years transcribing those. And then it was probably another three or four years work to put the dictionary together. So between myself and Anna Ash and Amanda Lissarag. So going through not all the sources, because we didn't have time for that, but a lot of the old sources, they had a different spelling system. So you had to say, now what does this word actually mean? Um, compare it with what you'd heard on the tapes, if there was anything on the tape. Um, then develop a relationship with the publishers to, to produce the thing, uh, you know, to put it into written format, edit it and so on. So I'd say if you started from scratch, the Gamilaroi Dictionary is probably eight years of work or so. Yeah, wow. And so those tapes, that you, uh, so Fred Reese and... Uh, Arthur Dodd. Arthur Dodd. <clears throat> um, what was the content? Were, were they just kind of going through like a dictionary, just itemising certain words or was it conversational? There were two main people who did the interviewing. One was a woman called Janet Matthews who was a musician and her job originally, she had a contract with, it's now called AATSIS, the Institute in Canberra, um, and her job was to go around and record language, uh, record songs, but she actually started recording language and she had a great way, she really got, got on really well with people and for about maybe five years in the 1970s she would start from, I presume from Canberra, but she'd do something like Burke, Brewarrina, Walgett, Lightning Ridge, Kaduga. And at each town, she would sit down with people. Now, she wasn't a linguist, so she would have with her material that someone else had prepared. She'd have a word list or she'd have old word lists from the 19, from 1900, from R.H. Uh, Matthews or Ridley or other people like that. And she would go through and say, OK, what's this word? And she would try to read it. Uh, often enough, because she was reading a, in a different writing system, she wouldn't know exactly how to pronounce it, but so she often got people to pronounce that. Um, sometimes she had heard a story from someone and she would say, OK, here's the story of the Emu and the Brolga. I'll say it in English, can you say it in language? And people would do that and then other times people would just take it over. Or sometimes she would just uh, invent a story. So, you know... Um, these two people were having a fight and the police came along and put them in jail and everyone cried. You know, so she'd have this sort of thing and, mm. and so the, the other person would translate the story or traditional stories, you know, so the, as I already said that, the Emu and Braga and other stories like that. Uh, sometimes she would have worked with a linguist and they would have said, look, we'd like to know these particular things. So, for instance, the word you in Yualarai has at least six different forms. So you, one person, uh, you are walking is Nginda, you two are walking is Ngindali, you three or four or five walking are Ngindai, right? But if I say I saw you, it's Nginuna. If I say I saw you two, it's Nginalinya. Uh, and if I saw you three or more people, it's Nginainya. So she would have something that a linguist in Canberra had given her to say, okay, can you ask people these questions? Yeah, yeah. Well. Uh, and that often gets quite confusing because, um, you know, how do you explain that you're after this, this sort of thing? But, 
Yeah, so she had quite a, a range of different things that, that she was after. And then sometimes the conversation would just go off in a direction and she'd say something. And there's a lovely sentence on when she's talking to Fred Reese and she walks in and says hello to Fred Reese. And he says uh, something like, Wonder, you know, wooing you, Baludi, the white fellows have come back from the moon. And so he'd been reading the newspaper about you know, the American spacecraft going to the moon, and he gave her that sentence, the white fellows have come back from the moon, in Uala as sort of, yeah. uh, in, as part of, of the thing. So there's lots of really nice stuff. And one of the things that happens on the tapes is that there are aspects of language um, that people weren't looking for often. So, um, for instance, there's ngayi, which means you do something in the morning, you put it on a verb. So... Yana means yanai means to go, and yanai means to go in the morning. Um, so there are things like that, that that have turned up in the tapes, and particularly when it turned up with Janet Matthews, she didn't recognise it. There's another woman called Corinne Williams who was a, a linguistics student, and she made not as many tapes, but they are more technical because she was actually when when someone came out with something new she would often follow up on it and say, you know, oh, here's there's something interesting, here's something we didn't know about. Mm. So they were fluent speakers for a reason? Moderately. Um, so when I first started transcribing, I can remember being really frustrated because Fred Reese was asked for the word for sister and there's a 20-second gap. Now, in those days, you, you couldn't actually visualise the sound, so you just had to wait there yeah. until... Um, I, so I'd say moderately fluent. So the, the early tapes of Fred Reese, uh, he's quite slow, but over three or four years, I'm not sure how he relearned language, maybe by thinking about it, maybe by talking to other people who are language speakers. Um, so there's some quite you know, elaborate language with Fred, uh, and similarly with Arthur Dodd, but when um, th there are some tapes where Corinne Williams is asking him some technical linguistic questions like, I saw the man whose father built that house. So that's linguistically is quite complex. Uh, and, and Arthur Dodd would struggle with sentences like that. Um, but there were lots of other areas he was, he was really good. Um, but there'd be quite a lot that he wouldn't know. In fact, when I was typing up Fred Reese's tapes, uh, I used to often have T-I-A-W. Um, in fact, it's there at least a couple of hundred times. And T-I-A-W is Fred Reese saying, there's a word for that, but Fred Reese doesn't know it. Or mm. there's a way of saying that, but I don't know it. So, um, I mean, what Fred Reese and Arthur Dodd have given us is invaluable, and it's probably the best language information we got, but it's not, it's not fully fluent. Yeah. How old were they when they recorded that? They were both in their 80s. Yeah, so wow. these are the 1970s. These are two men who were both born in 1890. Um, Arthur Dodd remembers that he, you know, people saying you were born in the 1890 flood. And Fred Reese, Fred Reese's birth was actually entered into the station book at Bankett Station where he was born. Mm. And then the tapes were recorded over what kind of time period? In the 1970s, um, so probably 72 to 76, maybe 70 to 76, 
Yeah. And by the end of that, Fred Reese was 86 and was getting quite deaf. So Corinne Williams tried to, to work with him, but he was just too deaf by that stage, really. And there's, there's one conversation where she tried to get the two people together talking, Arthur Dodd and Fred Reese, and it goes for about a minute and a half um, because, again, they, they were just struggling to hear one another and so on. So whatever happened there, that's a real pity that, that it was that late. But mm. we... we you are in a much better position than lots of other languages in having this really valuable resource. Yeah. When I was up in Walgett a few days ago talking to some of the elders, they remarked on how they and their parents weren't allowed to be speaking the language. I guess from your work up there with elders of different ages, did you have a gauge on what time period that there might have been that real restriction on language? Or like, does it go back to... Fred Reese and Arthur Dodd's days? I think one of the really significant things was the, it was 1936 when people were moved from Angle to a mission where I, my impression was that there was quite fluent language. And I've also worked with a bloke called Ian Sim who was in Gadooga in the 1950s and people in Gadooga in the, in the 50s were quite fluent. Um, so one factor would be the move from Angledool Mission to Brewarrina Mission, where people then had to be in a group where there were a dozen different languages being spoken, um, as well as the natural impact of ongoing pressure. So Gamilaroi country language disappeared or language declined much earlier because there were many more white fellows um, and there was much more pressure not to speak language and you, the, there wasn't the concentration of Aboriginal people. Um, I know people who said, look, I, I couldn't, couldn't work and speak my language. You know, if I spoke my language at work, I'd get in trouble with the boss. So I think the process was going to be fairly strong for language to, to move on, to be less used. Just as with Italian people, there's not many Italians now, even those who were born in Italy or whose parents spoke Italian when they came, who, who speak much Italian. Um, but certainly the government policy, the pressure of white, uh, white shopkeepers, white owners and so on, and the move to be Warren Mission, all of those things contributed to the, the decline of language. Yeah. So I guess, you know, these, well, Walgett is kind of on that uh, northwestern part of Kimilaroi country. And it's quite a large expanse of land, I think like the second largest you know, tribal area yeah. in New South Wales. Is there anything to say how similar or different language might have been, say, in the southeast of Kamilaroi country? Is there any other documentation from other towns, other missions like Walgett? And, oh, not Walgett, uh, Tamworth. and um, Very little. Um, and... And it can be a bit complicated because if you record someone in Weewar, you're not sure that he comes from Weewar, but he might have come there or she might have come there to work on the pea, picking peas or, or whatever people came from. So the fact that something is recorded in one place um, doesn't necessarily indicate that, that there was, uh, you know, that the person was from there. The major document like that is was made by a linguist called Tyndale in 19 I think it's 1938 and at Wee where he recorded a little bit of the Emu and Brolga story from a bloke Doolan I've forgotten his first name um, now 
it's about 40 lines and Tyndale in his notes said, you know, I recorded this from him over a period of two days and he had a lot of discussion with his friends about it. And when you look at it, you can see that this is quite simplified language. So, you know, Mr. Doolan had obviously um, struggled with what it, you know, to put together something, but it wasn't fluent. It would be like my Italian in many circumstances that, you know, I don't, I don't have full Italian structure by any uh, stretch of the imagination. So, but to get back to your question, um, that language shows some features which are in common with Whalwen and Wong Ibon. Hmm. So, yeah, there would have been variation across the area, um, undoubtedly. So what towns are you talking like, Whalwen and Wong Ibon? Okay, like, so Whalwen okay. is south of the river, um, so from Brewarrina to Canamble and a bit further up, up the river on the, on the south side would be Whalwen and Wong Ibon's further west. So, and Whalwen and Wong Ibon are also called Nyempa. Yeah. And do you know of any boundaries uh, that would, you know, say separate, you know, uh, you know Gamilaroi from Uralaroi know, and uh, Whalwen and, and such? Is it, is it defined or is uh, the language is quite blurry in that regard? I, in my sense is that if you're in Walgut, for instance, if you go um, north, you're in Nualaroi country. If you go west, you're in Gamilaroi country. And if you go, sorry, if you go east, you're in Gamilaroi country. If you go west, you're in Whalwin country. So, and then at Briwarana, again, my sense was that north of the river is Murawari and south of the river is Whalwin. Um, but... Uh, the other side of that is that, that people were multilingual. So Arthur Dodd spoke Whalwen, he spoke Gamilaroi, although not as well as the other languages, and he spoke Uwalarai. His mother was, was Whalwen, and so that was a language. He talks about his brother Charlie speaking six different languages. So my sense of it is that most Aboriginal people would have spoken three or four or five languages, and, and they would have had a high respect for the people who spoke more than that. Mm. Uh, so I'm not sure that, yeah, and I, because this is so far back in the past, I mean, an approximation of the boundaries for me is important. Now, in other areas, this is really vital, but it's an issue that sometimes can actually distract you from, from doing the hard work of learning language mm. you know, around boundaries. So it's not something that I've had a huge interest or, or tried to put much energy into. Yeah. Yeah. And, and. I guess with the dictionary and um, a lot of your work, then Gamilaroi and Uralaroi and Ualii. Uh, uh, Ualii, uh, yeah. So I guess they seem to be grouped together. They have very, uh, I guess, a lot of similar words and such. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering, is that more of a, would you call that a different language or would that be more a different dialect? And what's the difference between, say, language and a dialect? Okay. So ling, there's, there's two definitions of this sort of stuff, and one is social and the other one is linguistic. So a linguist would say dialects, people speaking different dialects can understand one another. Right, so, uh, and so, and again, there's going to be, this is not black and white, this sort of grades, but someone, for instance, speaking Gamilaroi would say Mara for hand, 
someone speaking Yualiyai, Yualarai would say Marfa hand. Now I'm pretty sure that most Yualarai people would have known, hey, there's this systematic difference and, okay, they say it Mara, we say Ma. Um, they say Buru, we say Bu. That's okay. You know, we, we just know that and you can work it out as you're listening. So in terms of linguistics, Gamilaroi, Yualarai are dialects. And the difference between Yualarai and Yualai is minimal. So a few things like um, Babur for foot in Yualai, whereas Yualarai uses dinner. But they're really minor differences. And most speakers, I think, would have known them, you know. Um, so, but socially, um, people say this is our language, this is our country. So I think it's Norway and Sweden that the languages are basically similar, you know, not very different, but one's called Norwegian and one's called Swedish because they're two different countries. So that's a sociological difference, even though those two people apparently can understand one another quite well. So those areas, certainly Gamilaroi and Yualarai, are mutually intelligible. They can understand each other. So a linguist would call them at that level dialects. A sociolinguist would say their languages because the two groups identified themselves as quite different. Mm. Um, and then there were subgroups within that. So Langlow Parker, who lived at Bangor, talked about the Noongaburra mob, the, the Karajong tree mob who lived along the, the Narran River. So I'm not clear on how the different levels, you know, how people saw the social structure. So I can say I'm from Bill Conan, I'm from Canberra. I'm from Southeast Australia, I'm from Australia. You know, I, I've got all these different ways of saying where I'm from, or I'm from Rennie Street. They're all true, but, you know, the, if someone came along in 100 years' time and, and sort of said, oh, I want to classify this stuff, you really need to know how the thing is structured to be able to make sense of, you know, what matters and to what degree it matters and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So... I guess coming from a background as a linguist, what skills do you bring to being able to untangle language? You know, just say someone just going along with tapes and a headphone and a pen might uh, be able to bring to it. I think in this particular situation, so in language revival, um, let, me, let me contrast two things. A child growing up keeps hearing their parents' language usually. And so over tens of thousands of hours, they absorb the structures of that language. You know, so they will say something like um, rund instead of ran, but they'll eventually, they'll go from saying rund to ran, you know. And um, I don't know how much of that is from people explicitly saying, look, you know, you say ran, not rund, uh, and how much of it is from just absorbing it. So in, in a typical language situation, in a first language situation, people absorb things over years by, without a lot of formal teaching. In language revival, you are in an extremely different situation. You, there's nowhere to absorb the language. Right? So um, whatever structure it is you want to get of the language, whether it's a pronunciation, whether it's intonation, whether it's the meaning of words, uh, in a language revival situation, unless something 
has, is actually described and taught and absorbed, it's not going to be part of the revived language. Right? So, what, so it's, from my perspective, if people want what they speak in future, future Gamilaroi, to be like old Gamilaroi, it's actually really demanding. They have to do a lot of study because they have to work out, they have to say, okay, I've actually got to sit down and consciously learn this. Um, and that's, that's quite a demanding task. So what the linguist can bring to that is to come along and say, look, this is how the language works and um, this is, you know, so here it is in a package. You can read through this and, 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 uh, and learn it. Now, I, there are different skills there. One is um, to actually get a, a quite technical understanding of the language, you know, and, and, if, and that's going to be written in technical language. So you need to have technical grammars so that you can concisely write down things, you know. So if someone's making a computer, there's going to be a computer book that you write for the computer makers, right? And then there's going to be another set of instructions you, you write for the computer users. So part of the skill, uh, skill set that I bring to it is that apart from having learned to be a linguist in the last 20 years, I also used to be a teacher. So one, one thing I do is I analyse the language and that will be written in technical linguistic talk because that's the easiest way of doing it. And then I try to also put that into a process where people can learn it. So that's the teaching side of it, learning side of it, producing resources that people... Um, and the other thing is the, the sort of thing we did last night, where someone wants to translate a song, um, and you say, this is, a, this is the English, how can I say this in language? And then for bits of it I can say, yes, I, I'm pretty sure I know how to say that, and other bits I can say, look, I, I don't know that. Um, I've never heard how to say that in language, and we haven't, we, you know, Frederick Arthur died, haven't worked that feature, you know, never covered that particular aspect of language. So it's, it's a bit counterintuitive, but a ling linguistic analysis uh, and careful description of the language is more important in reviving languages than it is in learning other languages. So, for instance, if you want to learn French, you can listen to French radio all day. You can go and sit in a cafe in France and just absorb French, you know, and that will influence your French. You'll be able to do some of it by absorption. There's no way you can do that with Gamilaroi because I'm not fluent. You know, I, I, can, I can talk about the things that I talk about in Gamilaroi 1 because I've been over that many times, but anything that's a bit more complex or uses vocabulary that, that uh, I haven't used for a while, um, I'm not going to be able to say it. So because there's no one fluent in Gamilaroi, um, you need another learning process. Uh, now, let's acknowledge the fact that there's been huge progress in the last 20 years. Um, so there's people now speaking Gamilaroi in a traditional pattern but in quite limited areas, with quite limited vocabulary, mm. which is great. It, that's, that's a big step. It's a huge step from where we're, a huge set of steps from where we were 20 years ago. Last night, after we did the translation, got to sit with you and your other linguist colleagues, I got to listen in on a fascinating discussion around that balance of keeping things 
very traditional, you know, how they would have been spoken and, and being quite strict around structure and on the other side being a bit more lenient to your people who were wanting to get in there quick with speaking language and being able to share it amongst each other but maybe not being too pure in regards to those tapes and documentation mm -hmm. you know, uh, sure. from uh, speakers. So I've heard you talk about it before but I'm just interested in your thoughts on those two uh, different ideas. Yeah, and I thought about it later. Uh, so the people were talking about light Walpuri. Now, one of the differences between Walpuri and Gamilaroi is that Walpuri is still spoken. So if you go to Uendamu, people are talking Walpuri. So it's actually a language that's used to talk about everything. So, you know, the, the, there'll be a school setting where people talk English, but in lots of, of Uendamu, people are just going to talk Walpuri all day. And that will be a language which has been modified slightly or whatever in the direction of English. So it's actually a communicative language um, and people understand each other. Now what's what's happening with Gamilaroi is that people are learning the language. Uh, when I ask people do you want to learn the traditional way or another way people say I want to learn the traditional way but that's actually going to be a lot of work and the structures haven't been set up to let people do that. So. You can do Gamilaroi 1 at university, but that really doesn't suit most people, and that's a lot of work, and even the learning style doesn't suit a lot of people. Um, and where people are, are, are sort of experimenting with Gamilaroi, it's not like Walpuri that there's a community that uses the same form. Each teacher or each person will do their own thing, and they'll adapt it in a slightly different way. Um, now, uh, that, that is not helpful in a revival because you're going to have a whole lot of different versions of, of Gamilaroi. And so you actually can't use it to talk to one another. You know that some things are going to head in the direction of English. So, for instance, word order. University students find it very hard to get out of English word order. You know, uh, I ate the biscuit, right? Uh, now in Gamilaroi you could put those words in, in three or four different word orders and they all make sense with different emphasis. But you just know that a lot of the, you know, the word order is probably going to change towards English. You know that some sounds probably won't get retained, so the N NH sound where your tongue's pushed up against, the uh, top of your tongue's pushed up against the top teeth, um, you, you know that's probably going to disappear. Um, but uh, some of it is retainable. So to me, one of the, the things about having the traditional structure is that one, it is the traditional structure. And secondly, it means that everyone who's working on this has a common language and they can actually talk to one another. So if the aim somewhere down the track is to have people talking to one another, um, then you need a common language. There's a symbolic use of language, so welcome to country, songs and so on. In a sense, they, they are really powerful because they are public use of Gamilaroi language or Uwalaroi language. And just using those words is a really powerful statement. The fact that it may not be clear what those words mean doesn't matter as much. So 
kids singing Frere Jacques are singing a French song, the fact that they don't understand what it means some level doesn't matter. So to me, there's, there's this, um, yeah, there, there are some changes that are inevitable, uh, but there are some changes that are easily avoidable. And if you want to maintain the traditional language, and the, there are lots of special features in this language. Um, so for instance, if you want to say, oh, I ate the biscuit and got sick, the word got has a little bit in it that says from eating. Right? Now that's, and, I, and Arthur Dodd uses that all the time, or he uses it many times on the tapes without anyone asking him about it. The, the people interviewing him didn't know that was happening. So the language has lots of special features and, and if you just pick up the dictionary and say, oh, I'm going to do this from the dictionary, you'll, you'll end up not having those special features. Uh, and in fact, what often happens is that people have very simple language, so it actually couldn't express anything complex appropriately or clearly um, because people haven't learned the complex structures. So you've got to learn some complex structures. Now, you can import them from English or you can say, these are the ones from the language, this is what we're going to do. Um, but I guess in the, in the long run, um, this language will be growing, I hope, long after I've gone and, and it won't be my decision. But I'm what I'm trying to do as a linguist is to say, if you want the traditional language, this is what it looked like. All right, so is there something to be said for, or are there concessions made to simplify things for the sake of more effective transmission? I, I think of this as a, a process and a learning process. So to me, yeah, you simplify things. So when I teach Gamilaroi 1, I, I simplify things dramatically. And I say to people, look, there's probably... 15 words for there in Gamilaroi, uh, we're going to use this one or two words because we're doing Gamilaroi one. Now, but I would hope that people would also, some people would also say, okay, this is the Gamilaroi one level. This is like a person learning first year Chinese or first year Japanese. Uh, and so I'm going to know simple language. But I think it's also really important that there's the people recognize that there are steps in this and that while the vast majority of people or lots of people might learn first year the people who teach them learn 10th year Gamilaroi and have all you know I, I think it'd be really important for major workers in this language to have listened to those 60 tapes and have understood them um, so to me yes for lots of people this is never going to be a language that they're going to be fluent in, but they might learn a few words, Yama and Yalu or Bayandu, or a couple of simple sentences like where are you going and what that. So yes, yeah, simplifying, but the, recognizing that the simplification is, is, is a simplification and that we love to have a few people who understand the language comprehensively um, who are building new material in the language on the basis of traditional structure and that they're the ones who are in a best position to write songs and produce books so that you can absorb some of that extra material when you read books and so on. So you're not always working at an introductory level. So yeah, it's got to be simplified for an introduction. It's got to be simplified uh, for early learners 
But what's happened in language revival is that in Gumbangir, Steve Morelli has spent thousands of hours working on the Gumbangir stuff, and he has got all this knowledge in his head, some of which he has put into the grammar. Um, but he's not going to use all of that in, in introductory courses. So to me, having this sequence, acknowledgement of a sequence and acknowledgement that you need, you need some people who have really spent years and years working on this language and comparing it with other Aboriginal languages so that they understand it better um, because they're the ones who are in the best position to, to um, keep, keep the traditional features of the language without expecting everyone to do that. Mm. Looking, say, 50 or 100 years into the future, what do you imagine would be best-case scenario for Milroy, Yuralaroi language? Um, or what would you like to see in regards to how it's being used and its potential? The actual use is, is probably a decision for Gamilaroi Yuralaroi. No, it's a decision for Gamilaroi Yuralaroi people in a sense. Um, so I'd love to see lots of Gamilaroi Yuralaroi books and movies out there. Um, I'd love to see half a dozen or a dozen Gamilaroi Yuralaroi people who are the experts in the language and some of them would probably be working at university because university provides a job for researchers. That's university's job is to do research and so on. So you would have um, those people working closely with Gamora URI people wherever they are. Certainly not people on country, but I get emails from people in London saying, I'm a Gamilaroi person in London, I want to learn my language, how do I do it? So you would have um, the Gamilaroi URI people who are, who are the researchers, some of whom are at uni, um, working particularly on things like courses for teachers, so that then the people who become teachers go into, into schools and can teach stuff, and then those people who are in schools uh, or TAFEs or in community programs have got a good sound knowledge um, of the language and they can actually keep building their knowledge of the language because at the moment that's not happening. Um, yeah, and, and people are going to be really proud of it and, and using it in lots of contexts. Uh, but there's still going to be this range. So in my dream there will, there'll be lots of people who are, who are reasonably fluent but there's going to be a range where you've got a couple of people because it's been their life's work or a substantial part of their life's work are, are going to be really expert in it. Um, and have developed the language because one of the things is there's lots of things we can't say and um, I mean through my work you know I compare say Gamilaroi with with Pijanjara or lots of other Aboriginal languages there are lots of features in common so the building of new things in Gamilaroi Yualaroi um, is ideally based from my perspective on other Aboriginal languages rather than on English um, so if it's done on what on people's instincts, it's going to become more and more like English. If it's done on people studying it and comparing it with other languages, then it's going to be more and more like traditional Gamilaroi So, for instance, Aboriginal languages rarely use heart as a metaphor. You wouldn't say, my heart's broken. You'd say something like, my guts are shredded, right? Uh, or if you get the hots for someone, you say, my throat's hot. 
something like that. You know? mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot of metaphors, for instance, in, in other Aboriginal languages, which we could borrow into Gamilaroi or Yuwarai, because very little of that has been recorded. Or we could take the word for heart and say, my heart's broken, or my heart's beating, you know, whatever. Um, so which direction will New Gamilaroi go in? There are choices there. Um, so, yeah, so I'd love to see this language being extensively used in a way that people can actually talk to each other across all the country. Um, what will happen then is that dialects will develop. So the people in Coonabarabran will say, we're going to say this, or they'll just get used to saying something a bit differently, but they'll still be able to talk to the people in Tamworth and Walgett and Gunnedah because there were just, you know, there'll be little differences. Um, so that, w- that actually needs a change in policy um, because I, I think probably f- 18, 20 years ago I first wrote a letter saying, look, we need scholarships for Indigenous people to do linguistics so that they can become the experts. There's maybe one or two Indigenous people with a PhD in, in languages at the moment and they're always going to get better money and less attention by working in administration than by working in, in, in languages because the politics and languages can be challenging. So we need lots of people to do linguistics courses, lots of indigenous people to do linguistics courses um, and we need jobs for them and the ideal job is teaching the teacher and supporting community programs. Um, so that would be... But language is really not about language. Language is about what's it do to your guts, what's it do to your head. Um, so uh, I guess when I went to Walgett High School, um, in my first year there, there were 35 Indigenous people in Year 7 and one in Year 12. Um, and this, I was really sad about that because then people who didn't get to Year 12 didn't have jobs and it was a tough life. It was really tough. So to me... The, the main reason for doing language is because people then become sure of themselves, they become prouder, they, yeah, and, and life is a better thing for them. So I would hope that language and, and a healthy life and a good life go together rather than the, the toughness that I, you know, not, not the, yeah, the sadness I guess that I see often in in uh, in parts of Aboriginal life. Hmm. So I've got to ask what it is like to be a non-Aboriginal person working so close with Aboriginal language and being the source of uh, information for such a large number of Aboriginal people. At times it's really um, satisfying and at times it Times it doesn't involve Aboriginal people. I can sit in the office and listen to a tape and, and I don't have to see anyone else, black or white, for, for days. You know, I can just sit there and say, listen to the tapes and go over them again and say, oh, here's something I didn't see 20 years ago. Um, but at times it's really gratifying. So someone said to me recently, oh, um, I was somewhere and a and, um, person picked up the dictionary and said, oh, here's the Bible. Um, so to, to be the person who is the main writer of the Bible is a bit gratifying. Or one stage, again, secondhand, someone, um, someone um, 
described giving an Aboriginal person the, a copy of the dictionary and they held it to their, their chest and said, this is my language and cried, you know. So the fact that you've been able to do that um, is extremely gratifying. Now, at the same time, there's tension because um, I remember one stage I had a, a person from Brisbane Uni in a class and he didn't come back after morning two and I thought, oh, God, what have I done? And, and then he came back in the afternoon and said, look, it's got nothing to do with you. It's just that whitefellas took our language away. And for some whitefellow then to be telling me how it works is pretty upsetting. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's a range of reactions. Um, I know that lots of linguists actually don't survive in this job because sometimes the money's not there to pay them. So to me, this is part of the, pol uh, the policy imbalance that people sort of think, oh, we've got to get people singing head, shoulders, knees and toes and don't put enough effort into the what I would call the linguistic side of it. Now, both are absolutely necessary, but both are. Um, but sometimes the politics just gets to people, you know, like... One family will say, you can't tell this to the other family because you were working for us when you did this, is an example I can, can think of. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a challenging task. Uh, it can be challenging. So it's got this mixture of, um, of real satisfaction. Um, it can sometimes be like doing a Sudoku. You're just involved in your own little world. Uh, and it's got this mixture and then this other side which can have some strong feelings involved in it. Hmm. Are there certain processes that you have to go through in regards to being able to access materials and how do you get a hold of all these tapes and get permissions from MyAtsis and such? So when I first got the tapes, um, yeah, I had to get a permission form and what was I going to use it for, for my own research and to give to any Aboriginal person who was interested in the language. So that way they, IATSIS asked me what I wanted the taste for and that's what I said. Um, those sorts of things change over the times because at that stage the, I needed to get permission of uh, Janet Matthews' daughter. Now Janet had died, so the white side of things, not the Aboriginal side of things. Um, it can be problematic. So recently I was after some other tapes that were made in Walgut and they said to me, okay, well, you need to go to Walgut and get the community approval for those tapes. Well, I just didn't have the time and I, and I actually didn't know, I mean, I probably could have gone to the elders group, but um, they don't re necessarily represent all of Walgut. I don't know if everyone in Walgut's there. So that... So um, sometimes that can be an issue, yeah. Mm. But Uncle Ted was really strong on use of language. And he said, the more people who speak my language, the stronger it's going to be. And I want this language to be used again. So black, white, I don't care. And we had a big meeting in Walgut uh, around schools. We had a couple of meetings at the Catholic school. Uh, Aboriginal parents came in and said, sure, we're happy to have a language program and for John Jacon to work there. Um, then we had a, a town meeting about the high school and again, they were happy for me and Marianne Betts, uh, a white teacher at the school, to, to do that. And Alan Lamb at Gaduga hired me to, 
to teach Aboriginal people. Alan Lamb's Aboriginal man who was running the CDEP, he hired me to get to teach Aboriginal people language. So, um, yeah, often enough it just works quite smoothly. Yeah. From previous podcasts, talking to people about language and the sharing of culture, a couple of people, I guess, of the feeling that they don't necessarily want people who are of you know, another, who aren't of that particular tribe, you know, learning and practicing you know, culture and language, until you know they've had people of that tribe being able to do it. Do you come across that much in in regards to people's feelings about the the work that you do? Not about my work. But it's sometimes people say you can only do language on country, um, and to me that you know you can only we can only have this language taught here. Uh, we can only have, for instance, Gamilaroi taught here when our language is taught here. Now, to me, um, I don't find, uh, and I, and often a small group can actually block another Aboriginal group. So. There's not necessarily consistency within Aboriginal people. Like, I mean, in any organisation, whether it's the Liberal Party, the Labor Party, the Catholic Church, people are going to have different opinions. Um, yeah. Language is, I think that sort of thing is around. I, from my perspective, it's often um, not particularly helpful um, because it's not an either or. It's often, you know, I have learned a lot about Gamilaroi by listening to Wong Ibon and by studying Pitjantjara. So if you're with a language that hasn't got a lot of resources in particular, you will learn a lot about your language by looking at other languages or you'll find models there to fill in the gaps in your language. But that's me talking as a linguist. It's not me talking about a per as a person with an emotional uh, connection to a particular language. Mm. And how similar are any Aboriginal language in different parts of the country. So do you have similar structures to Gamilaroi, to uh, you know, Pitjantjara and or, or even uh, Yolngu? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so across most of Australia, there's a group of languages which linguists call the Parmanyungan languages, and they will have lots of similar structures. So they will have different sorts of verbs, um, so different groups of verbs. Um, called verb classes. I don't want to get too technical, but you know, you can look at Pijajara and say, okay, yep, this bit there corresponds to this bit there. They will have similar words. So the word bina ear, the word milai is is common in all. The word bu or pu for hit is common in lots of languages. Um, sometimes there's very uh, close similarities. Um, so yeah, and for maybe one example. Um, if I want to say me and you, I can just say Nully, we, right? But if I want to say me and Harry, I don't say Harry and I, I say Nully, we too, Harry, right? Now, there's a few examples of that in the ULRI materials. But I found an article which went through similar structures in a whole lot of Aboriginal languages. So what that then says is, yes, this operates in Aboriginal languages. This is a common structure. So on the basis of a few examples in the Kimilaroi ULRI sources, you can confidently build something much bigger and say, okay, here's a pattern. I can't be 100% sure that it was exactly like this, but I can be pretty sure. And 
the alternative is to have an English pattern, you and I. Right? Um, so when you've got something which you are 99.9% .9 sure uh, happened and is an Aboriginal structure versus an English structure, to me there's, there's really no choice. Um, yeah, but it's, that's just an example of one structure which is common, not necessarily in all Aboriginal languages, but across a lot. So, to me, one of the, one of the things I think would be a great learning um, for people who are doing Gamilaroi is to go and live in Pidjantjara country or Walpuri country or somewhere else for, for a month or two and do courses in those languages and absorb things from those people because um, then you're actually dealing with a living language which is quite similar um, rather than just trying to learn it all from books and tapes. Yeah, right. And what about other parts of the world? Are there any parallels to you know, random language on the part of the globe or is it quite unique, the, the structure system? The structure as a whole is unique, but there will be elements that English doesn't have, which other languages do have. So, for instance, in Maori, you have dual pronouns. We, two people, you, two people, they, two people. So Maori has dual pronouns like that. Um, there are features of... Uh, in some ways, Gamilaroi is, is close to Latin. Um, the fact that you can move words around in a sentence um, because of the way you modify those words is similar to Latin uh, or Turkish or whatever. But... So, so there are... So for someone who's used to English, you'll find lots of features in, in Gamilaroi, which are in other languages, but as a whole, no, there's not that sort of overall structure that, that's found elsewhere. Hmm. And how have you gone about the writing of the language, how like the spelling and I guess in particular with certain syllables which aren't in the English language? In recent years, and I, I don't know how long far back this would go, but probably as far as the 1960s or 70s, there's been a common system used across a lot of Australia. So if, you were, if you've learned a little bit of Gamilaroi and you pick up a Pidjantjara book, you'll be able to, to, uh, to read that pretty confidently and get it pretty right. So it's Pidjantjara, Walpuri, lots of other languages, uh, Bunaba, because people have, have worked out a system that works pretty well for Aboriginal languages. Um, now, sometimes people have different ways of writing things, but you just need to know what that particular symbol means. And this is a bit hard to write about, a bit hard to speak about, but okay. So we use, for instance, double R for the R sound. In Pijanjara, you just have one R. And for the R sound, we use one R but Pitjantjara uses an R with an underline. Mm. So you, once, you, you, once you, you work in this area a bit, you've got to say, okay, this symbol represents this sound in this language, but it's got a different symbol in another language. But it, it works pretty well, and it's much easier to read Gamilaroi, Yuwalarai, Pitjantjara, Walpuri than it is to read English, because with English, it's absorbed lots of words from other languages, you know. So you get a word like read, which is a bulrush, and read, which is what you do with a book. They're written differently, but they're said the same. You don't get that 
very much in, in languages which have just recently been written because people can say, okay, if it's said read, you write it this way. So the writing system um, was pretty well developed well, truly, before I came along, I made some changes to Corinne Williams. So she would have um, A with a couple of dots after it, which was a long sound. And we write that double A because that's easier to do. Uh, and it's, you know, so there's a couple of changes like that that have been made uh, in the writing system. Um, the writing system is going to change the way the language is said because in Aboriginal languages generally, um, there are a couple of distinctions which don't, which are found in English which don't matter. So G and K are the same. So you can write, you can say Gaduga or Kaduga and people won't hear the difference. Um, so it's, you just say, are we going to write it with a G or are we going to write it with a K? Most of the sounds you hear are G, but there's an occasional K. So and that, that can vary, you know, a person will say Gaduga one day and Kaduga the next day. Um, so what's going to happen is that it'll sound a bit more like English because we've used a G, but there's, but there's, there's no way I've seen, there's no way people generally have seen of saying, okay, look, this can sound like G or K. I do do that in class, so the word Gomil, no. Uh, I say to people, you can say this Gomil or Comil, and... People sort of occasionally use Comil, um, but it tends to be Gomil, yeah. And then I grew up just seeing, you know, Camilleroy spelt with the, you know, K-A-M-I-L-A-R-O-I. Yeah. Uh, and so you have a, a whole lot of stuff spelt like that, you know, the, the highway and on, uh, I don't know, just heaps of stuff. But I, I guess it wasn't until recently I just started seeing it spelt with the G and with the double A-Y at the end instead of the ROI. Yeah, is there a reason for for that being different or how come there's, there's these two different kinds of spelling? Okay, so people who wrote down the word for no years ago in the 1800s write it either as gomil with a G or comil with a K, sometimes with an O sound and sometimes with, a, with an A, right? So there's this word that means comil, right? And then there's a bit... The, the rest of the name, language name, is awry, and that means with. So you get that in Narrabri, Bogabri, but that's sometimes pronounced Roy. So you get this little bit that means with. Um, so Colorenabri is Gullerene Barai. Gullerene is gum tree blossoms, right? Narrabri, I think Narra means creek, I'm not sure. Barai. Um, so the fact that that's sometimes pronounced bry and sometimes pronounced roy um, gives you a bit of a dilemma. And so to be... So pronounced by who? Uh, by the speakers, by traditional speakers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, you think, okay, this is a sound which is reasonably... Well, if you think of your tongue position, if you look, I and oi aren't really that different. Um, now we could write it different in Camilleroy, uh, because that's the more common pronunciation, but it also gets pronounced Camilleroy or Gamilleroy. Um, so you, you then say, okay, are we going to write it just one way uh, that shows the structure of it, 
and that's the decision that's been made. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a bit messy because one letter can have a couple of different sounds. So the A, for instance, after W, for instance, in Wamba, is a more an O sound. But you get the same in English. You write W-A in watch. It's an O sound. It's not an A sound. Mm. But that's because it actually gets influenced by the W before it. And so... Wow. Wow. So where you... But, but then, I don't know, if you see, like, the W-A, like, W-A-M-B-A, then I'd I, I kind of be thinking, like, Wamba. Okay, so so in, this, in the pronunciation guide, it'll say the letter A is centred around... Like, this is the way I'd write it now. The, the letter A is centred around the sound of R as in but, yeah. right? But after W, it's a bit more like O. Sometimes after B... It's a bit like O, oh, so there's a word but, which is written B-A-W-I-L-I, -I, sing. Now, because you've got a W after it, that's actually pronounced bowly with a bit of an O sound. Mm. So, um, now we could write that with an O, but often, generally, B-A is ba. Yeah. Uh, Just going back to Wamba, because yes. I, I, okay. I, I write well, Wamba when I'm joking around with family. Yep, yep. Um, I've never seen it written uh, otherwise, and I've always just gone for the O, because wa. Because if it has more of a, like, O oh sound, then why wouldn't you just go with the O? Instead of, like, the Okay, a. so we, we're going to get a, a little bit... Can I get a bit technical? Yeah, please. Okay. So English has lots of different vowels, and a, and a linguist would say a vowel is something which changes the meaning of a word. So if you think of pit, pet, pat, put pot, put. There are six different sounds. So English has got at least six different vowels. There are six different vowels because the, the first bit, the p and the t, are the same in every ring. So you say English is a language which has got six vowels, right? In Gamilaroi, and pretty well in, don't know about every, but the vast majority of Aboriginal languages, you only need three different vowels to distinguish. You never get six different ones like that. So um, so then people say, okay, what's the simplest way we can write this, right? And the reason you want to write Wamba with an O is because your, your, your ears are tuned to English, where A and O are different. Mm. In Gamilaroi, A and O aren't different. You never get a word, one word with A and one word with O, which are exactly the same elsewhere, and they mean two different things. So you won't get wamba and wamba. You just get... So you only need yeah. e-r-u, mm. and then you have... The simplest way is to say, look, when there's a w around it, it's probably going to go a bit more towards an o sound. But then the people who are learning are generally going to be English speakers, so yeah. they're going to tend to gravitate towards what they... Are familiar with as yes um, yep and that'd be an argument for using oh um, my experience is that people generally learn the spelling system reasonably quickly uh, and in fact I can and I had exactly the same discussion with Uncle Ted early on and then one morning after he'd been working on this you know using this for a couple of years Uncle Ted came up one morning um, and he said here's some words I thought of last night and he'd written them down. 
He said, you read them. And I read them. And he said, you know what? This spelling system works. Mm. So, yeah, with any new language you go to, um, now French is not a good example because the French spelling system is as mad as English. But if you go to Italian, you need to learn some rules of Italian spelling system, right? So my name is Giacon. So G-I in Italian is J or Ja. So G-I-A is Ja. Now, that's not the way an English writer, English person would write it. So I get my my name gets mangled all the time because people aren't used to the Italian spelling system. So, um, yeah, this is a spelling system which, which does work. Um, for initial learners it could who are based in English, it could be different. Hmm. I think it might have been um, uh, Miff Turpin I was talking to uh, about the recording of, of certain songs. It might have been her, but uh, you can check my previous podcast for this one, perhaps. Um, they were remarking about how with songs, once you record it, then for a language that you know is not documented, written or through recordings, then you end up being stuck with this one version of it as opposed to it being you know like this fluid entity that I guess could you know develop like Chinese whispers perhaps yeah is there something to be said for language and how the documentation of language changes its relationship with the people and its uh, its development uh, absolutely so if something is a living tradition um, then it's going to change so if you go into a cafe these days people probably you order something else people often say perfect you know and, and that's a change that's happened in English around here recently. But the, when a language is not a living language, the alternative, you, you've got the alternative either having a recording, which is one version of it, and clearly it's not the full line, or zero. So they're your options. Um, so for a, for a living language, yep, you, you actually want, yeah, the people who are using that language, the people who've got that language in their blood, in their head, they're going to vary it. They're going to tell it slightly differently. And the same is true of songs, the same is true of stories, same is true of pronunciation, and so on. Um, in a language where you're working from records, the records are precious because that's all you've got. So, for instance, in Gamilaroi, there's really no tapes of any sub... of any substance of any uh, extent with recorded gamilaroi. So what we're building a lot of gamilaroi on is the, the structures in Uallari, on the Uallari tapes. Now, where we do have gamilaroi, we, and you can compare that with Uallari, you can say, yep, these two are pretty well the same in structure. So there's quite a strong uh, logic in using the Uallari structure to rebuild gamilaroi because the bits you, you already have are the same. Um, but in language recording, in language revival, if you didn't have that material, you'd have nothing. So it's not a matter of saying, oh, this, this was once, you know, every time someone sang this song, they did it differently. And every time someone told this story, they did it differently. Well, it'd be great to have a hundred different versions of it. But if all you got is one version, well, you've got to be really grateful for that. And then with accents and different people's ability to be able to 
mouth these new syllables. Yeah, how flexible do you feel that we should be in regards to um, wanting to speak the language but finding it a little bit hard to get that no? That's, that's a really good question. Um, look, I think it's better if people use any Gamilroy rather than none. Um, and then it becomes maybe a question of the context so that um, how are people going to regard their own Gamilroy? If, and if, if people are too insistent on you've got to get mm, at the start of a word or you're not there, then that's just going to inhibit people from using language. Um, now, at the same time, if I'm going to run a Gamilaroi class and people say, I want to learn traditional Gamilaroi, then I would point out to them that, hey, at this particular part of, the, of your speech, this was great, but you didn't have this particular feature. Um, so that's a real challenge, how to have people learning and improving their Gamilaroi if they want to, and at the same time being relaxed about the level that they've reached. Mm. Um, so then, you know, say the difference between Nyaragar and Naragar, is that, um, could you put that down to it being an accent or does it then go beyond that into being a completely different consonant or word? I'll give another example. So the word, the word for horse, uh, Arthur Dodd on the tapes says Yaraman. And we've actually got it wrong in the dictionary. We've only got one A in the last bit and it should be a double A, the long R sound, right? All right. So he says Yaraman. People now say Yaraman. Yeah. Now it's, it's recognisable. Um, but I say to people like, hey, you can say, you know, I, I can't stop anyone from saying Yaraman, and nor do I want to. But I'm saying if you want to speak traditional Gamilaroi, then Yaraman is the way it was said by Arthur Dodd on the tapes. Um, now, how, and you just hope that that doesn't scare people off actually using language. So maybe mm. the, the classroom situation is, needs to be different from the community situation or, you know, in your own house. And I don't know, I, I don't know how, yeah, if people, I don't know what people want to do. Do they, do they want to say the traditional thing? And can they be relaxed about saying, well, look, this might be a process or I, some people say to me, look, I'm never going to learn. Mm. Um, and that's okay, you know, look, well, then say Yaraman or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting, like, well, uh, before I even saw it, it written, like, I was, like, growing up with, you know, just family saying, like, Yaraman. Uh, okay, so your family say Yaraman? Yeah. Okay. Like, with that kind of, like, the kind of rolled R, which mm. I don't do that well, but, oh, yeah, awesome. but, um, yeah, as opposed to the, you know, the very, like, the Western R, Yaraman. Yeah. Yeah, they say Yaraman. Like, so, Yaraman. Yeah, it's quite interesting seeing that word in particular uh, right around the, the country. Yeah. Well, no, I heard... It was because of the sound that it makes, like mm -hmm. the yaraman, 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 when it kind of... Um, one, one thing I've runs. heard is that it actually means big teeth. Okay. But look, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that anybody knows. Yeah. Yeah, is there anything 
I will kind of wrap up in a sec, but is there anything you feel that is worth knowing for people who are going to be interested in getting more involved in Gimilaroi, Yuralaroi language, or even uh, revitalising their own language? Following Uncle Ted, um, we've had this policy of making lots of materials available. So if you go to org, there'll be links to... Um, links to, to lots of resources. So people can download the uni textbook. We've got an EPUB version of that where you can listen to sound. Um, so we try to make lots of things available. There's kids books that, that people can buy. Um, so there's there's plenty of things that you can do. I think it's, it, it's uh, hard work, uh, but it's also a lot of fun. So I think if people can, you know, try stuff out of that and get as, as far as they can get. There's little videos that people have made. Um, I guess to me one of the features of language revival is that it's it's a team effort. So all the language revival stuff that, that I'm aware of in New South Wales in particular has been a mixture, has involved community people learning stuff but it's also involved other people who are sort of the organisers and the analysers and the people who produce the materials. So for Wiradjuri, Stan Grant and John Rutter were a great team in, in getting a lot of materials together. Um, in Gumbangi, Steve Morelli and Uncle Kenny Walker and other people at Murabai Language Centre um, did a lot of work uh, and Steve Morelli is still doing work. And he's still discovering new things about the language, you know, by going back to the old materials. Um, so that teamwork approach um, and I guess if, if you can have the attitude that, okay, I'll learn a little bit and if I can learn more, I, I will, you know. But like to me, it's wonderful the fact that people are using language these days and, um, yeah, it's, it's just terrific. Yeah. Yeah, well, what is happening over the next um, you know, few months, few years in regards to your work with language? Well, I, I'm, I'm working on a EPUB of the, of the university course, which... We've got one version out, but we have to have a, a better version of that out. Uh, I'll be teaching Gamilaroi 2 in a couple of weeks, I hope. Over Christmas, uh, or over January, um, people have commented on the fact that in the United States and in Canada, they, ha they have summer institutes where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people go to learn language and, and to really develop their language skills, so to, to get a depth of knowledge. Uh, and so ANU, Australian National University, and Charles Darwin University are working together to put together courses. So next January in Sydney we'll be running some courses teaching Gamilaroi, Yongumata and Indigenous Linguistics. So there's we're trying to create opportunities for people to depth their knowledge of language and learn other languages. Uh, so that'll be something that I'll be involved in. Um, Second semester, I try to be a pensioner a bit and go and do a bit of cross-country skiing and a, a few other things. Um, but also the, the organisational thing. So to me, one of the uh, areas to work on in Australian languages is an understanding of the process of revival. So if you go to somewhere like New Zealand or Hawaii, um, I think they've developed the teamwork better. So the universities, there's lots of universities in New Zealand which teach Maori. Uh, there are people writing their PhDs in Maori. There's a similar setup in Hawaii. So that cooperative effort and people working at different levels of language revival 
is is something that I'm trying to uh, encourage in Australia because I, at the moment uh, I don't think we've quite got the balance right in in where the effort goes and where the dollars go. Um, yeah, I think the understanding of how language works and the fact that you've actually got a if you want if you want to get traditional structures and traditional bits of the language you've actually got to analyze it and learn it and use it and that that's that's not something that happens automatically uh, so i've seen lots of people pick up the dictionary and then they'll try something and you sort of think Gee, i wish they'd read the grammar section at the back or or something um, so yeah working on on that planning side of that understanding side of how language arrival works as part of it so there's lots of different facets yeah. awesome oh thanks now for yep we haven't spoken enough language you kind of oh, one of yes. the rules one of the rules is you don't do language stuff without doing language so everyone who listens to this broadcast they might already know yama so yama's yeah. been around a long time as hello it actually means that what i'm next going to say is a question but so can you say yama Yama. Great. Nice long A, that's great. Okay. Yalu means again, and it's short for Yalu Ngali Ngamile, which is we will see each other again. So just can you give us Yalu? Yalu. Right. And some other people say Bayandu with that DH sound of yeah. Du. Du. Yeah, Bayandu. And Bayandu means soon, and that also is short for Bayandu Ngali Ngamile. We will see each other soon. Bayandu. Bayandu. Ngali. Ngali. Ngamilai. Ngamilai. Beautiful. Dilabu, flash. <laughs> Dilabu. Uh, so like flash, like as as in deadly. Deadly. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because I've been wanting to, because, uh, yeah, it's nice being able to use, uh, yeah, I guess like with a Pitanjaro, like to say, like Rikana. I don't know uh, Rikana. I know yeah. Ua Palya, but yeah, yeah. not Rikana. Okay. And then up in, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, up in like Yolngu country, though, I think that they've got the word kind of for deadly, uh, it's like Dapetic. Yeah, something like that. But I, I've wanted to be able to use a word down here for you know something that is cool, something that is deadly. I think uh, like you hear Nunga. Uh, mob using a particular word. I uh, can't think of what it is. But yeah, so, so what is this word uh, for? Okay, so for there's pepper? a word, dira, which means flash. And when you put boo on the end of things, it means absolutely, right? Yeah. So dira boo is deadly, flash, you know, spectacular. How, how, do, you, how do you use that first, uh, that first syllable? Di, so the. push your tongue, tongue tip on your bottom teeth and push your tongue forward. Di. Di. Di and then ra. Di ra ra. Ra boo. Boo. Di ra boo. Di ra boo. I'll work on it. Kaba. Good. Right. No, you, you don't need to work on it. You've got Dirabu. it. Di Nice long oo at the end. Yeah, di Gaba. Not gaba. Not gaba. Yeah, so do, do you want to um, make that distinction? Because I guess people here, you know, gaba. It's uh, like who might not be familiar with you. Know, okay. Yeah. So... Gabba is the word for good, and it's been written down since the 1850s. Um, but people also use Gabba, people used to use Gabba as whitefella. But a lot of words like that change. So words which have a long vowel sound at the end. So Gabba, over time, people say it Gabba. And, but if you ask the old people, mm. they say Gabba, 
And if you say what's lots of them, it's gabars. So it, the, the long sound stays there mm. longer when you use the plural. Um, so gabar is white fella and gabar is good. And when people pronounce them both the same, there's a bit of conflict. Yeah, yeah, true. And I guess it's one of the reasons why I guess I grew up uh, hearing people, well, my, yeah, uh, Camilla Roy and your other Roy uh, relatives referring to white people as, you know, like wonders. Okay, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. You say wonders, and I, I tend to say more wonder. wonder. So it's interesting, but they're both the same, right? Wonder. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And wonder is a pale, nasty ghost. Okay. Pale, nasty ghost. All right. Good to know. Yes. Didn't want to be too racist. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Thanks for the yarn. Uh, now, for thanks, um, in 1860, there was a bloke called William Ridley who was, who was travelling through Gamilaroi country and he met this blind fellow and he gave him some food and the man said, Maruba Nginda. And Maruba is a bit like good. It's another word for good. Maruba Nginda. Nginda. So Nginda is you. So what we're tending to do these days is use Maruba as a short word for thanks. Maruba. Maruba, yeah. Nice long... So the A is long, the first U is short, and then the A is long at the end. Maruba. Maruba. Maruba, John. Maruba the Gan. Thanks, brother.